This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Hello everyone, this is Dr. Lynn McPherson. I'm the program director of the online graduate certificate, Master of Science and PhD in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland, Baltimore. I'm very excited to be joined by Connie Dolan, who is one of our faculty members teaching the first course in the program with another colleague. And most importantly, our guest, Professor Clark. Welcome, Professor Clark, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I printed your bio, but I was afraid I was going to run out of toner before it finished printing. Uh, but I will start off with the very first sentence, which is you are a professor of medical sociology at the University of Glasgow School of Interdisciplinary Studies in Dumfries, and you have wide ranging interests in end of life issues in the global context. I know that you are incredibly well published. Um, I have your latest book here uh, on James Sisley Saunders. Uh, I think I learned some new words just in the prologue alone, but uh, very exciting and ready to very conversational style. I've enjoyed what I've read so far very much. What I know that you're a great historian in end of life care, obviously talking about Dame Cicely Saunders. What else would you like our listeners to know about your background? It's incredible. Well, uh, first of all, Mary Lynn, just, just to say, I'm now retired. I'm emeritus professor at the University of Glasgow. I, um, I retired at the, uh, in, in the autumn of uh, 2020, um, though I continue to have major interests in some of these areas. Um, I originally studied sociology, anthropology, and history. Um, even as an undergraduate in the early 70s, I, I got interested in end-of-life issues. I was reading the work of Kubler-Ross and others as a final year student. I wrote a dissertation on um, uh, social aspects of dying. Um, but subsequently, I, I worked quite a bit uh, as a graduate student in the sociology of religion, um, but I, I continued to be interested in aspects of death and dying expressed through religious rituals in particular. And then later on, after that, I, I worked for quite a while um, in the sociology of the family. And it, I, I kind of fell into work on end-of-life issues by chance because I, I was asked to... Um, to join a group of people who were going to form a, a sort of an academic center um, for uh, research and development in what was still being called terminal care at that time. This was around about 1988, 89. And I, I found myself drawn more and more into the world of palliative care as an academic uh, over the next couple of years. And I started to drop some of my previous interests and, People said to me, David, you know, you seem to be going down a rabbit hole. What is this palliative care business you've got involved in? It seems terribly narrow. And um, I, I said then, and I would say now, that the contrary is the case, because I found that the, um, my interests in um, sociology, history, anthropology, uh, specifically in, in religion and family, um, along with my growing interest in, in sociology of health and illness, all sort of came together in the palliative care world. And uh, I was lucky enough to join a small group of people who went on to establish an academic department uh, at the University of Sheffield uh, under the leadership of Professor Sam Armitai, who was one of the very first professors of palliative medicine uh, in the United Kingdom. I think he was probably the third uh, that we had. Um, so from then onwards, late 1980s, I concentrated all my efforts in, in, in this sort of area in terms of research and academic work. Obviously, I, as, as time went along, I took on other wider academic responsibilities. I, you know, I was head of a research unit uh, at Lancaster University. And when I moved to Glasgow, I became the director of a rural campus that the university has in Southwest Scotland. Um, so I had broader responsibilities over the years, but my specific academic focus was very much on end-of-life issues, palliative care, uh, gradually broadening out from palliative care to, um, to include other things. Uh, um, more recently, I, have, um, I was very fortunate to have a major grant for the last five years of my career 
from the Wellcome Trust, and this enabled us to branch out into a lot of new areas. So I did much more work then on um, cultural aspects of, of death, dying and bereavement. For example, we, we looked at phenomena like um, death cafes, but we also engaged in, in studies of um, assisted dying. I was partic became particularly interested in how the palliative care world was reacting to um, assisted dying where it was legal in any given jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. I still think this is a very unfinished conversation that um, um, what we've seen over the years has been a very oppositional uh, uh, position taken up by palliative care towards any form of legalised assisted dying. But I think there is great scope to, to look uh, more closely at how a conversation between the two could lead to some sort of rapprochement. And, and so we did some work around that as well. Um, and of course, as you said in your introduction, I've had this long-standing interest in the history of the field. Um, wrote a book on that that was published a few years ago. Uh, and in particular, I've uh, had a, an interest in the sort of how you map the global development of palliative care in more recent times. I could talk about that. And, and in relation to the history, um, I had a close relationship for over 10 years, the last 10 years of her life. I, I worked very closely with Dame Cicely Saunders to ensure that her papers and, uh, were properly um, brought together and archived. And the, um, the, the biography that you kindly held up there at the beginning is actually the final volume in a trilogy of books. Mm -hmm. The first was a, a collection of her letters, which I edited, and a collection of uh, publications. And then finally, some years later, um, the biography. So I, I've been very, very fortunate in uh, my career to range widely over these issues uh, and to work with some incredible people, um, not just in, in the United Kingdom, but um, much further afield um, and around the world. Um, one aspect of that was that I, I got drawn into writing the history of the project on death in America. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned uh, when we were talking before the interview that uh, you had interviewed uh, Diane Meyer and others. And I got to know some of these people when they were faculty scholars on the PDIA. I interviewed them all myself. Uh, and, and I wrote a book about um, the, the nine years of, of work that was PDIA and, and what its legacy looked like. So I've been very, very lucky in my career to have had these opportunities. And the, the position I've taken up in this work from really from a very early stage was to regard myself as a critical friend of the field of palliative care. Uh, as a non-clinician, as a social scientist and historian, I, I wanted to do work that would be seen to be relevant to the field, uh, but not simply be at the beck and call of the field. Mm. Um, not simply there as a social scientist to do studies that were framed by the field, uh, though sometimes I did, but also to do work that problematized the field. And when, when I was um, writing my grant application to the Wellcome Trust, uh, I said that the, I thought that the position of social science uh, with regard to the palliative care and end-of-life care field um, was somewhat problematic. On the one hand, there were a group of people who were so embedded within the field as researchers that they couldn't be critical of it. They were simply doing work that was almost determined by the field, researching the questions that the field was throwing up. Mm -hmm. And then at the other extreme, there are a group of social scientists who were too remote from the field, too conceptual and esoteric to be relevant to it. So what, what I've been trying to do is to find a position that's somewhere in the middle of these two extremes that remains critical and searching and asking uh, sometimes difficult questions, but in ways which are supportive to the development of palliative care, um, not simply sitting on the sidelines or sitting in the ivory tower and kind of we would say nitpicking about how things are, um, being critical in a robust way, but in order to bring about improvement. And I don't know, it's terribly difficult to know whether you've succeeded in that goal. Um, now looking back on, on, on my career, it's, it, it is hard to know uh, to what extent that has, has worked, but it, it's been my orientation and it seems at least to have drawn the interest of, of quite a lot of people over the years. So there was so much in that. 
<laughs> so thank you for that. Um, I'm going to go back a little bit because I think one of the things, Professor Clark, that you brought up that nobody has really focused on before is that you were intrigued as a lot by this, this relationship of the family and religion to palliative care. Um, and what was it that sort of brought that into the um, end of life interest that you had um, of understanding why it was so important to bring those two together in end of life in a way that people hadn't focused on before? Well, uh, I'd been studying in those fields uh, prior to getting involved in, in, in the end of life uh, work. Um, so I was interested in structures and change and patterns of family life, but also in, in the role of religion in society. And if you look at the, uh, the early writings, so particularly of Cicely Saunders, there's a very strong emphasis on both of these. I mean, one of the things that I think was really key in Cicely Saunders' approach uh, as she formulated the ideas around St. Christopher's Hospice, which opened in London in 1967, but had like a 10 year gestation, was that um, she wanted to be able to focus not just on the, the, the index patient, the dying person, but on the family and the, the social network of which that person uh, is a part. So that, that was really very important because I think, uh, if you read Cicely's work, you'd see that um, as she gained her experience at St. Joseph's Hospice in Hackney, she was very impressed with how the patient was cared for, but she didn't see much scope for the family to be involved in that care. Uh, and so St. Christopher's really tried to break that mold. So that was interesting, you know, what, what opens up when you actively involve a family in the, in the care of a dying person? Uh, and, and don't try to sideline them and take over from them. Um, and of course, she, Cicely, was um, a profoundly religious person herself, uh, had a fascinating religious journey in her own right. And she was always interested in the role of faith and, 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 and the absence of faith uh, in um, how people come to terms with their own mortality. Um, so I think that you know, if you think of, for example, Cicely's concept of total pain, <clears throat> first formulated in 1964, um, with its, its dimensions of the physical, the social, the psychological, the spiritual, you can see how religion and family and the wider society are all incredibly important in shaping the experience of giving and receiving care at the end of life in addition to the more obvious dimensions of physical care, clinical interventions, the relief of, of pain and, 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 and so on. Um, so from, as a sociologist with an interest in these mm -hmm. things, I think I found a ready kind of fit with palliative care. I felt comfortable exploring issues around religion and family life and the wider social context. Well, so then the reason why I think it's interesting is because I think we're finally really, in, at least in the United States, realizing that if you don't include the family or uh, however the patient um, defines it, you're, you're kind of not going to be successful, right? And yet, um, at least in our society and the way that our healthcare is, um, we set forth a lot of these principles of caring for the caregiver or doing all the support, but they aren't covered by insurance and they really vary by community. Um, and so there's no consistency, right? So we, um, I think, have set up this ideal that dying at home is, is the thing you strive for. Although, you know, I would say in the literature we're actually seeing here because you may or may not have the supports. It really depends on where you live as to what type of hospice care you give. Um, for some families, they're actually traumatized, right? And so we've, we've set up this dichotomy here, dying at home, good, dying in any other place, bad, which mm -hmm. I think is not fair to the families, right? We've got to look at that. But at the same time, you know, what do we offer to the families? We here send people home expecting them to be like healthcare providers and they don't have that education, right? Yeah. And, in our society, we we deem that quote custodial so that we don't have to pay for it. So I think you know where you've come from is so important because they are the ones mm -hmm. left with the experience. They are the ones who left. If we're going to think about psychological healing going forward, um, and so I think it's it's you maybe have been looking at something that was sort of so ahead of its time, and we're just it feels like starting to get that emphasis 
Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I, I think the United States context is very specific because all thinking about palliative care and hospice really has to come back to your financial system. And, you know, I think this has been, it, it's important in any society. Um, but I think the, the particular nature of the, the American healthcare system has been so crucial to the way modern palliative care has been conceptualized in, in, a, in a sort of market economy and where um, of, you know, often the, um, the patient and family are treated as sort of consumers of a service. So when Diane was doing that work on uh, trying to find a, a new language definition of palliative care, um, that really was all about what would be seen as desirable and acceptable to consumers uh, of this product. Um, and um, that, for me, led to some problems because I think it, it, it um, in part, has, has led to a sort of masking of mortality and of death. And the, the notion that um, palliative care becomes an extra layer of support uh, as you progress through the stresses and strains of your disease and, and the side effects of its uh, treatment. Um, I, I, I think that's a, you know, a very particular version uh, of palliative care that could only really emerge in the concept text of a, the American healthcare system. It, it, it doesn't make quite the same sense in a system like the one I live in, where uh, healthcare is free, paid for from taxation and is free to everybody at the point of delivery, uh, and where there is a much wider kind of social dimension to uh, our thinking about care, rather than a financial driver to it, which seem, always seems to be so important uh, in the US context. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think I've come to the conclusion that the, the way that palliative care has been shaped in the US can only be understood through the lens of the financial system that has produced it. Mm. Um, and I think it's probably the most extreme example of that of any country in the world. I mean, many poor countries, palliative care is being shaped by the absence of resource and the absence of financing and income streams and so on. So one's not trying to deny that. But I think the debates that are developed in America and the way in which um, the issues have been framed, particularly among leaders in the field, is how to convince others that palliative care is cost effective right. and and there's there's some new work out on this a new book which I, I I've got on my shelf somewhere but I haven't got around to having a proper look at but it it, it, it seems to be arguing that the, the whole impetus for development uh, was about cost reduction and, and that was never the impetus in certainly in Britain and and, and it's not it's not an impetus that I see very, very widely in, 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 in European societies. Um, but I think it has been very, very compelling in the US and has had particular kind of consequences for what is where palliative care sort of begins and ends, what it's defined as being. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I think that's, you know, it is an interesting concept, I think, because, you know, here um, also people change the name, right? They figure if, if you make it more palatable, but I, I think many of us who are, have been in the field for a long time would say, that's really for the clinicians, right? Once the public knows what it is, they'll either embrace it or not. Like, you know, whatever name you have, people figure out what the services are. Um, and so it is about our, our, our death denying um, culture and our economics. But I think, you know, I, I would wonder, you've said a couple of things also that were interesting. I think of this whole part about us um, being able to look at ourselves and critique ourselves. And, you know, you were talking about if you're too embedded, you can't be objective. And if you're too remote, you don't understand what's going on. Um, in terms of really critiquing ourselves, what are some of the areas that you think we really do need to look at ourselves a little bit more and think about for the future? Because um, I think that's important for people to say, you know, we did the best we could. We may not have gotten it right, but we want to keep moving forward to kind of making it better. Yeah, well, I have some thoughts about that, and I preface them by saying I'm not speaking now in purely in relation to the American healthcare system. You know, I think that there are um, some wider issues that you see occurring in other places. Um, 
I suppose what, what what has been going on is that we 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 have a field in hospice palliative care that begins on the margins of, of the mainstream system and has to battle its way into the centre in some way. Um, I wrote a paper on this from called from margins to centre a long time ago in um, the Lancet Oncology. Um, and this is pretty common in most countries that. Um, things begin on the margins and, and, and try and work into the centre. And getting into the centre involves a number of things. It involves clinical recognition and respect from, from others in, in, in other areas. Uh, and there's a lot written about you know, the, the problems that have occurred as palliative care enthusiasts have tried to persuade their colleagues in other aspects of medicine and healthcare that what they're doing has value. So that, that, that's a dimension. And, an, and another one is policy recognition, you know, trying to get into a position where the work that you do in palliative care finds recognition in policy, uh, whether that's at a very local level in, in the hospital where you're working or whether it's globally with uh, recognition of the World Health Assembly and the WHO. Um, I mean, there's, there's an enormous number of struggles that have gone on over the years to to try and get that recognition. And um, I suppose that, that there's a little bit of romanticism about the experience of the pioneers in the early days. Um, you know, it, it's tough being on the margins, but it's also very exciting. You're trying to break into something and uh, offer something new as an agent of change. What, where uh, the issue sort of starts to get a little more problematic is when you've, begun to do that. And there's a very famous paper written years ago by uh, David Field and Nikki James, where they used some of the ideas of Max Weber to talk about this very process. You know, they called it the routinization of hospice. It's when, when um, the hospice idea starts to become mainstreamed. Um, and then I think, you know, some of the founders uh, get concerned that something's been lost here, that perhaps paid rather a high price for this. It could be that you have to um, shape everything to the constraints of the healthcare system, uh, its funding structure, its systems of evaluation, quality assurance, and so on. Or it might be that you have to pare back on the holistic vision of palliative care. Uh, and give less emphasis to, let's say, the softer dimensions of spiritual care or psychological distress um, in favor of dealing with the most immediate and pressing issues of pain and symptom management. Um, so th that kind of debate that goes on about whether it should be called palliative care or supportive care is in that territory because, you know, supportive care is unequivocally about this sort of or very strong emphasis on uh, pain and symptom management. Um, so I think these are, are quite interesting areas that um, the field has been traveling through. Um, but I also think that there have been new injections uh, in more recent times of, of fresh ideas that come from elsewhere and that sort of relocate uh, or, or resonate with some of the founding ideas of, of the hospice and palliative care leaders. For example, the whole interest that's grown up around the world in compassionate communities, um, the idea of um, framing palliative care as a, a, a new public health issue that doesn't begin and end with clinical services, but is something important in society um, that's about debating end of life issues more openly, having conversations uh, about these things. Uh, um, using that as a platform for thinking more proactively about advanced care planning, these types of things, um, they seem to me to have been rather fresh ideas that have, have been exciting uh, and developing in recent times that um, somehow reinvigorate a field that might be in danger of becoming, as, as one person within it said many years ago, uh, Michael Carney in, in an article in the journal of palliative medicine, uh, are we becoming just another specialty? Um, so you might say, oh, David, this is all very romantic, romantic view of hospice and palliative care. And the real deal is to get out there and give the best possible end of life and palliative care to as many people as possible. And if that means sort of 
it being a rather basic form of it, well, so be it, because, you know, we want as many people as possible to benefit rather than, I, I wrote a, an oral history book about uh, hospice care in Britain. We, we called it a bit of heaven for the few, it, which was a quote from one of our interviews that, you know, the hospice world is doing a, a wonderful job, but it, it's, it's only reaching a very small number of people. Palliative care is designed to reach potentially everybody that could benefit from it. And if you look at the Lancet report um, uh, on pain and palliative care, uh, came up with this notion of health-related suffering. And suddenly you find that 50 million people in the world every year could benefit from palliative care, indeed whether or not they die. Um, so this, this then becomes very, very broad. Um, so, uh, you know, I think some people feel that when it, the field is broadening in that way, some of its original essences uh, get lost. Um, so one, one of the things we've been trying to do over the last couple of years is to establish a, a Cicely Saunders society to, to hold on to her memory and to salute that, uh, but also to explore her legacy and what light it perhaps can cast on, the, on these sorts of dilemmas. And, I've noticed that the people that are drawn to the society from around the world often say this is a way to kind of reconnect with the early ideals so that we don't lose sight of these in our drive to be recognized, to get re reimbursement, to professionalize, to have training programs and uh, specialty recognition and all these things. And I think this is a you know, fascinating dilemma uh, for the field. And, and I think it's, it's commendable that there are still people within it who want to just alert their colleagues to this and say, well, hold on a minute. Um, you know, we're making progress down this particular road, but are we losing something in the process? I, I would hate this to sound unduly romantic, you know, that it's just a making an appeal to the good old days when in fact very few people got palliative care. That's not what I'm saying. But I think there is a risk of losing sight of some of the deeper and more profound aspects uh, that this field is interested in, in, in a way that many other fields of medicine are not. Well, where I think you, ha I mean, I, I think what you've talked about is this sort of like when you start off with a core group and, and you do, for the lack of a better word, try to go mainstream, there's a compromise, right? Because in order to go mainstream, we have to think about that. And where I also thought, you know, what you were talking about is, you know, I think that um, the World Health organization talking about palliative care as part of primary health, right, as part of PD. I mean, those to me are so important because exactly what you're seeing, because the other part of this is I think if we think about health equity, um, you know, if you look at the statistics, at least in the United States from the 2020 National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, I mean, we're still only reading, reaching 80 80% you know, are white people. Um, we haven't moved into the African-American or the Hispanic or the indigenous population. So there's something about that, um, Hispanic as well. And then um, you think about COVID, like, so we have this pandemic, we're not, it's not ours, right? We're helping the critical care, it's really theirs. But you know, is that, has that been an opportunity, which I think it has, or is it also gonna make people think that we're taking care of only people at end of life again, right? I mean, but you're sort of speaking about how do you move forward, hold on to some of your primary ideals, which in mm -hmm. my mind is this interprofessional part where we have this group of people looking at all the perspectives, right? Because you've already brought up that it really needs to be social, spiritual, um, biomedical, as well as thinking of the cultural and all of those pieces. That's what makes it so special. But we also have to figure out what happens in the real world. and in Maybe also in the United States, as you've said before, because of our financial status, it is different than maybe how the rest of the world is going to go. But I also think that there's so much for us to think about um, in the rest of the world, particularly in de developing countries, because we really haven't done a lot in this country on community health workers. Right, of thinking about those alternative things. So it is a yin and the yang, right? Of holding on to the ideals that got you started and recognizing that as you move forward, you are gonna to have to change. Like that's just the yeah, evolution. Yeah, right? yeah. But of course the, the history of hospice in the US is about community services. I mean, the, um, the, the route that was taken in the early days in, in, in New Haven was not to build a, 
a, a bricks and mortar hospice to, but to develop a, a home, home-based service, which becomes your paramount model in a way that it didn't in Britain. Um, you know, the, the St. Christopher's developed a home care service fairly quickly by 1969, it, it, was, it was up and running. But it wasn't at the centre of the thinking until the building was up and and, and the beds were in and um, you know so I think that um, you know that that is an important difference that when you talk about hospice most of the time you're talking about care delivered at home, whereas in Britain when people talk about hospice they think about a hospice, a place you go to and that where you might go to die or you know occasionally go there for respite for your relatives or that kind of thing. And I think the, the British hospice movement is, is really deeply challenged by this now. I, I wrote a blog about this a little while ago. Um, you know, we, for the first time, we've been seeing hospice closures on financial grounds in, in Britain in the last couple of years. And um, there's some interesting ideas emerging from that. But I, I was arguing that really the one way forward for our independent hospices, which are independent nonprofit charities, uh, very much rooted in their local communities, you know, we've got a few hundred of these um, across Britain, um, that they should really try to divest themselves of their inpatient facilities, um, relocate those to the local hospital, have the NHS meet the costs of them, and then the hospice could focus more on, on community interventions of various kinds bringing people in on a daily basis, reaching out to them at home, engaging with wider communities that surround the hospice in, in all sorts of ways that would be helpful to local society. Um, so that, that, it is a bit of a turning point for the for hospices in the United Kingdom at the moment. When I was thinking about talking to you today and I, I was looking back to when I sort of really first properly got drawn into this field in about 1989 that was coming to the end of um, a decade when it doesn't sound many in American terms but in Britain it's quite a lot every year 10 new hospices were opened in Britain throughout the 1980s so there there was a hundred new hospices built in that period I mean there have been very few built new ones built since then Mm -hmm. though many of them have rebuilt uh, and put up new buildings Um, but it was a very dynamic time, and um, that was also the period when, um, in 1987, uh, palliative medicine was recognised as a specialty for the first time. It was in Britain. It was when the, the, the first journals started to emerge, the late 1980s and so on. Um, and it was kind of a golden era uh, for hospice in, in this country. Uh, but in the last few years, um, that has really turned around. And the, what was seen as a, a kind of real virtue that our hospices were very substantially supported by local funding from the community. Over the years, that fraction hasn't changed much. The sector as a whole still relies on about two thirds of its funding coming from charitable sources and only about a third from the NHS. But now this is really beginning to break down and, and, and it's meaning that um, you know, hospices are struggling to, to pay their way uh, in, in the provision of inpatient care. And it's raised um, a lot of negative commentary where people are, I think, rightly saying, why are we still funding two thirds of our hospice endeavor, which we're so proud in Britain, from charity shops and, and, and you know, people running marathons and all of these kinds of things. I mean, it it seemed okay at the beginning, but here we are now 50 years on or more since the opening of St. Christopher's and we're still doing this. Mm -hmm. Um, So whereas I said at the beginning, you know, about the financial arrangements in the US being particularly salient, um, they're salient in Britain as well, because um, although we have uh, palliative care being delivered through the NHS, that's free at the point of delivery, the, 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 and, and the hospices deliver free care, but they are struggling to actually generate enough income uh, to provide the services that they want to. Now, my opinion is that it's because they, they're, they're still hooked on the idea that if you don't have inpatient beds, you're not really a hospice. Right. And I think they should try and drop that and let the local NHS take the strain. We do have some hospitals in Britain that... Um, have palliative care units that look like hospices, 
and which are funded through the NHS. And um, it wouldn't be difficult to have more of those. Um, so the, the, the field is changing in, in, in all sorts of ways. And I, I think that's where the role of somebody like me can be useful in, in laying out the milestones, the turning points, the paths not taken, you know, the, the dead ends and, and, and so on, and, and the new opportunities. Because yeah. for clinicians and clinician managers and leaders, they're often, you know, very much pressurized by their day-to-day -day responsibilities. And it's not so easy to, to step outside of that. And uh, we have this expression here, um, when you're holding a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> and, you know, I've, I've regarded my job as being to try and help people to just, however briefly, step out of that way of thinking and just to try to think again about what's going on. There's been quite an interest in Britain in this whole idea of taking design principles and uh, in order to redesign services. Uh, it, it, it's quite seductive that I've not yet seen any real evidence of, of where it's worked, but the, the concept that you, you sit down and look at your service uh, from a design perspective and, and you think about how it's built and how it operates and whether changes to the design would be desirable and, 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 and beneficial. Um, I think, you know, that's, that's kind of helpful way of, of doing this. It's a, it's a slightly more um, uh, kind of process driven approach. Um, but, I, but I think having the ability to, to step back is important at two levels really. One is to understand where you are in the historical context um, you know, over the longer durée, where, why are we like this? And then the other one is to be in a better position to respond to the opportunities and threats that are around you right now. Yeah. And, you, you know, do, doing both of those, I, I believe, is helpful. But when the pressure is on, it's often very difficult to do that. I think you bring up a really, really important point um, in, in what you were saying. I think this redesign is important because we have a whole different generations coming up with very different values, right? And so what we based it on was 50 years ago and, and you know, what people want is different. I think the other part is that you mentioned this clinical part. I, I know there's still research and all that, but I think we sort of have the, the clinical piece down. We know what to do and how to do it and some of the medications. We can fine tune that. I think your part about process is really important because how do we, how do we use the resources that we in fact have in a very, in being a good steward. Um, and I think for, in my mind, this whole part of community is really interesting because you're talking about, you know, inpatient houses. We don't have as many of those for the exact reason that people often can't get the support. The flip side of that here is I think what, we're really trying to think about is, you know, you have these acute care settings, crisis oriented, how do we keep people in the community where they want to be, knowing that every community will be different, but how do we give um, sort of a blueprint for these community partnerships, right, that yeah. really are engaging that community with those resources and those populations that speak to them to, to be helping us do this. And what that also means is that we have to sort of let go of that control, right? That if we're engaging with faith-based communities or we're engaging in community health centers, we're gonna have to let them sort of guide some of that because they're in that community. We are kind of brought in as a partner. So there's a lot of you know, these themes that I think you're bringing up of, of really where we need to, um, one of our key roles is, is to be a partner. Um, and, and listen to other people's ideas about that because we don't know what everybody needs, right? We have to have people be telling us. But yeah, I mean, I you've brought up some amazing parts of that. For me, one of the really interesting examples of that giving up power uh, is uh, to be found in, in the state of Kerala in India, where, where you have this uh, massively effective uh, community-based approach to, to palliative care, often referred to as the neighborhood networks in palliative care that was um, has been initiated and led by Suresh Kumar and his colleagues over many years and um, you know that they, they started off um, 
uh, right at the grassroots and, and that's where they've stayed. And what Suresh has often said to me is that, um, you know, if, if to empower people in the community, you have to be willing to give up your own power. And I think this is something that medicine finds very difficult to do. Um, but what you find in, in the model of palliative care in, in Kerala is that the, 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 the doctor doesn't have any higher status than the volunteer or the fundraiser or the community activist. But what I also like in, in the Kerala model is the way that they've engaged with groups in society. Um, it's, it's complicated in the state of Kerala. The, there are Christians and Muslims and Hindus. Um, but they've also engaged with um, the trades unions, with the police, with the political parties. And uh, this, uh, you know, is something quite different to anything we see in, in, in most other places. Um, you know, that the, the, there's a kind of literacy about palliative care in the state of Kerala, uh, in the society as a whole, that you don't really find elsewhere. It's been enormously successful there, and there's a lot of good data now on its coverage and uh, some data on, on, on its quality. Uh, but paradoxically, it's struggled to develop anywhere else, even in other parts of India. So we, we did a study a few years ago where um, we, we looked at an attempt to transplant the model from Kerala to the state of West Bengal, a much poorer state with much lower levels of literacy and education in society. And um, the, the model got going, but it looked very, very different and, and didn't succeed as well as, as it has in Kerala. And you know, the hope that this could be a model, not just for the rest of India, but for the developing world or even for the world as a whole, um, there's still to be realized. And there are people in many countries in Europe, um, Britain and Switzerland and elsewhere, who have taken a, a elements of the Kerala model and are trying to foster them in their own context um, but you know that there's a radically different approach to the ones that we've been describing and um, it's been enormously successful in one state but for reasons that aren't properly understood it hasn't flourished when it's been transferred and, and translated elsewhere um, and this has been a theme that's interested me a lot over the years and particularly in recent more recent times that I think in the global context of palliative care, there's been uh, and remains a view that you, you, you build a model that can be tested out somewhere, usually in the global north, in an affluent country. Right. Um, and you come up with something you believe to be robust, and then all you need to do is roll it out all around the world. And you do that through getting WHO endorsement and, 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 and Lancet endorsement and that kind of thing. But I, I think the, the reasoning here is very, very flawed. And uh, not just because good ideas come from the poorest countries as well, and you get this kind of reverse innovation uh, at times where an idea like the Kerala model transplants to uh, more affluent settings. Um, but it, it, it's just that there's a kind of, uh, there's a naivety and almost an imperialism as well, that, um, you know, that in the global north, we have access to all of the solutions. Now, we wrote a long, couple of long papers about this in relation to the Liverpool Care Pathway. So the Liverpool Care Pathway gets developed in, in, in Britain by enthusiastic palliative care people with brilliant hospice credentials. Um, and it gains uh, endorsement from governments, or four governments of the UK uh, endorsed it. And it became very, very widely used in, in Britain, the Liverpool Care Pathway for the last uh, 48, 72 hours of life. Um, and a lot of people were on the pathway um, when they died, when it, it was at its height. My own mother was on the Liverpool Care Pathway when she died. Um, but then suddenly there's this huge backlash that blew up from outside the field. Uh, journalists and, and uh, newspaper people and, 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 and uh, reporters and things. Uh, and, and then a lot of stories emerging about discontent on the part of family members who's had a relative put on the pathway. And eventually there was an inquiry into the Liverpool Care Pathway and it was withdrawn. But that wasn't before the perpetrators and developers of the pathway 
uh, had spread the message to 22 other countries that were also using it, some more or less extensively than others. Um, but, and they were then left wondering, well, we took this idea that came from Britain, from people with excellent credentials, but now the British government has abandoned it. Uh, but meanwhile, we've adopted it. Um, so that, you know, there are examples where things have not worked out very well. And um, this is the first one we know of, uh, where a palliative care intervention was act actively banned by, by a government here, right here in, in the United Kingdom. Um, so, yeah. you know, that, that these things need to be understood better. And um, for people who are studying on your course, we have written two long papers on this, published on uh, the Welcome Open Research Platform. So they're, they're, they're free and open access. Uh, I wrote them with Jane Seymour. Jane led on the first one, and that was really telling the story of the rise and fall of the LCP in Britain. And then the second paper um, I led on, and that was trying to tease out how it had spread in the meantime to 22 other countries and how they'd used it and what they'd learned as they tried to adapt the intervention to their own context. And then what they did when they discovered that it had been abandoned in Britain. Um, so I've had the luxury of being able to look at these things in detail, but uh, to me, there are enormous lessons to be learned from that particular example. Um, but the, there's, I would say, a slight unwillingness to go too far into exploring that. I, I looked recently at the, the first paper has uh, been read by 17, 18,000 people, which is a lot for a paper in our field. <laughs> I hope that those who read that have been able to take away some kind of lessons from the dangers of perpetrating a, a model um, rather hastily and without the best evidence, uh, getting it adopted by the policymakers and then rolling it out at the population level. Um, it, 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 you know, it looks like a great achievement until it goes wrong. Right. Well, I think also what you speak to is this thing that I, I've been struggling with for many years of that, um, you know, I think in the United States, we have this hospice model, and then we moved to um, palliative care, which was very hospice, I mean, hospital focus. And then I think the other part is, you, you know, you've spoken about this um, this dimension that we have interprofessional, um, and and we have had sort of this equity issue for a long time, right? Of kind of thinking about, okay, what happens in an academic medical center versus what happens in the rural community, and models don't work that way, and they don't have the resources, right? So, and and then the language is different when we think about this Eurocentric model that we talk about death and dying, right? I mean, here, you know, unless a patient says death and dying, we don't think they've accepted it, and you and I both know culturally they may never say that it may not even be appropriate and, and so we've sort of continued that and then I even think in amongst the team and you sort of have hinted at that I mean there's very much still this part about who has the power at the table we talk about an interprofessional team but we still haven't worked out the dynamics and the team of yeah. are we really equal in this and what happens when you do that so I'm just curious if you have any other thoughts about this sort of equity at kind of this micro level. And then you kind of talked about the, this MISO level too of global um, response. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think a lot of people continue to be engaged with the whole question of equity and uh, fair access to palliative care. And uh, certainly there is work going on in, in Britain around that. And there's a big acknowledgement that people from Black and ethnic minority uh, communities are, are far less likely to, to gain access, e even to a service that's free. Um, so I, I think that that's um, remains a big issue: uh, equity, justice, fairness. Um, that um, is still to be resolved. Um, it's, it's something to do with the messaging that goes on about palliative care, and I suppose. You know, this is what Diane Meyer was very keen to do, to get clear messages to specific audiences. Um, but it sounds like from what you've said, and it would probably be the same here, that messaging to black and ethnic minority communities in the United States and in Britain has, has not been particularly clear or, or, or particularly compelling. Um, so, you know, I think that, that it, there's a, a lot still to be done there. Um, and 
you know, the progress on that has been rather slow. Um, but of course, at the same time, you, you've got growing need and, you know, the, the, the aging populations are producing these huge spikes in, in, in demand for palliative care as well. Um, so, yeah, I think the equity issue will, I, I sense recently there's a, a lot of a renewed interest in addressing this and, um, you know, trying to do something about it. So it's been swept under the carpet in, in various ways and hasn't demanded a lot of attention, um, but uh, it, it has to be tackled. Um, well, I think for here in the United States, I mean, COVID just laid it bare. So yeah, you know, absolutely. pretending that it wasn't there, but it, when you look at all the COVID cases and care people received, I mean, even for people who don't believe it, like you, there is so much, well, I can't even say science because we have people who don't believe science. So we can just say yeah. there's evidence to suggest um, that's so strongly correlated that if you wanted to ignore it before, maybe you could get away with it. You just, it's, you know, it's just such a mm. elephant in the room now. And, and so, you know, maybe that's one of the 50 years later types of things of the things that we, we do need to address in a very different way. And, and having, um, you know, the students in this class who are coming from all over and different things, you know, they, they might offer a, a different perspective. I just think that's important. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Mithkirsten, you have a question, I can tell. You. So I would like to know what Dame Cicely Saunders was like. Was she a grandmotherly type? Or was she <laughs> spicy to the end? What was she like? Well, she's a pretty um, intimidating person in many ways. Uh, yeah. I, I knew her pretty well, but I, I was, I wouldn't say I felt relaxed in her company very much. She didn't do small talk. Um, she was very earnest and, and focused. And uh, I, I asked her about her sort of mental acuity in the later years of her life. And she, she thought in many ways that she was sharper than, she, you know, in, in late life than she'd been earlier. Um, yeah, she, she also, I remember her saying to me, though, that she, she did look back at times and she could remember times when she'd been a bit too um, sharp uh, in dealing with people and, you know, over hastily making judgments about what should be done and shouldn't be done. And, um, but she, she had a tremendous mind. She read very, very widely. Um, you get to the end of the book, you'll see that she's still, when even in the last few months of her life, she was receiving lots of visitors and they were, you know, getting questioned about their views on this or that issue that was around at the time. Uh, Lord Joffe was trying to bring a, uh, an assisted dying bill through the House of Lords in 2005. And um, Cicely was following that very, very closely right up to the time that she died. And asking people what their views on Joffe were and would it succeed and so on. Um, but for me, she's an endlessly fascinating person. Um, it was a huge privilege to spend time with her, um, to collate her papers, to, to do the, the, the trilogy of, of the two edited books and the, and the biography. And, and also the little book, Watch With Me, that I did with Cicely, which is tiny five chapters that really well, it was described by Robert Twycross at her memorial service as her autobiography. It's five pieces that she wrote over five decades mm -hmm. that bring together her personal journey with her work and her faith and uh, her practice of, of hospice care. Um, that book was um, translated into Danish just uh, a, a few months ago. I saw Connie had a Danish poster behind her. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, that, uh, is that Roskilde? Yes, that is. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Well, um, so, yeah, the, some of my colleagues in Denmark have translated the book and uh, in, in, uh, watch with me in, into Danish. It's been translated in seven languages now. Wow. Um, so I, I find Cicely a pretty intimidating character, but endlessly fascinating. And what I'm trying to do at the moment um, when I'm not responding to podcast interviews <laughs> is um, I, I'm trying to write a play about some aspects of her life. Um, and uh, that, that's going quite well, working with some young theatre people. 
and also uh, a nurse colleague of mine who knew Sicily very well and worked at St. Christopher's, but also knows about the theatre. So there are four of us working on this. Now I'm writing the script. Our goal is that we will try to premiere it at the Edinburgh Fringe uh, Festival wow. next summer in 2022. Um, but uh, it's she, she fascinates me. I, I finished writing the biography some years ago, but I, I still keep coming back to her work, reading, re reading, and rereading things that she she said and, 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 and wrote, I think it's enormously rich mm -hmm. um, legacy there uh, that sh should be of interest to anyone in, in our field. I'm yeah. sorry I did not meet her. I, I think Connie did have the chance to meet her. But oh, did you? But she me yeah. as somebody who did not suffer fools gladly. Oh, that's absolutely true. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll see that in the book at times in the way she responds to people who ask silly questions in letters or want to come and visit the hospice from America on Christmas Eve. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Things like that. You know. <laughs> yeah, I had the opportunity. Um, I did the Hospice Education Institute with Michael Galaska, who you probably knew. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Michael and I went way back. And um, and then also when she came to Boston, um, had we had a conversation with her. And, and so I would agree with everything you said, intimidating mm -hmm. and um, you, know, you wanted to be thoughtful. And um, I, I, I'm sort of fascinated, I think, when I think of what was going on of, of you know, her career as you know, being a social worker, a nurse and a physician, you know, that part of what, how that, if she could ever differentiate how each of those changed her practice, but then also thinking about you know, that she, you know, this triangle of her and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Florence Wald, you know, these yeah. three very strong women. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, wanting, yeah. wishing that you could have been a fly on the wall when they had some of their debates must have just been, you know, pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She, she could get quite snippy with Elizabeth. Uh, I think they butted heads a little bit. Um, but uh, the, with, with Florence Wald, it, it was a lifelong friendship. You know, they, they were very close to each other and uh, corresponded regularly right up to the time of Sisley's death. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, in fact, I, I've been reviewing the correspondence between Florence and Sicily just recently. There's a um, couple of massive files of letters in, in the archive um, between them. Fewer with uh, Kubler-Ross, but uh, a huge, huge amount with uh, uh, with with Florence, and, and also with Balfour Mount, the massive correspondence, and with Sam Clagsbrun, who was the psychiatrist who used to visit St Christopher's once a year from the states to sort of give advice on organisational matters. Mm. And these are really rich uh, sets of correspondence. They're not just like modern email they're pages long and they're reflecting on issues and something I've read and something you should read and yeah which is interesting even though as you were saying that and you kind of jumped to it like the the transition of people writing those letters and being like that and now just trying to get access to people's emails and um yeah. <laughs> trying, trying yeah. to think about yeah. how different that is so yeah yeah amazing okay yes as we wrap up, Professor Clark, any advice for our PhD graduates as they move forward into this field? Well, I think it's great that you're doing this kind of course. I, I'm a great believer in, in this approach. Uh, when I left Lancaster University, where I established the International Observatory on End-of-Life Care, uh, I left there in 2009 to move to the University of Glasgow. And one of the last things I was able to push through was uh, a taught doctorate in palliative care. Mm -hmm. And it's been enormously popular. Um, I've subsequently employed people from the US who graduated from that program because it's also a distance program. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's great that you've got students on it. And um, I would encourage them to use the space that the course provides them with to think widely and to read widely and reflect. Um, try to get out of their own bubble uh, wherever they can, out of their own comfort zone. Um, to explore matters of difference and, 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 and contradiction in an active way, which of course like this really provides you with an opportunity to do. It's not simply a training in how to do something. It's a questioning of why we do it and how it might be done differently. And I think you know, to 
really enjoy that experience in a creative way would be a wonderful starting point for students on the program. So as a lifelong qualitative researcher, I guess you are firmly behind the idea of always maintaining a good sense of curiosity. Absolutely, yes. Always wanting to know why things are the way they are and why we do things in a particular way. Definitely. But, but as I say, my approach has not been in order to demolish things. It's been to try to improve them rather than destroy them. Definitely. Yeah. Connie, any last words for Professor? Oh, thank you so much. This was such a great, uh, rich conversation and to sort of hear the different places and you know, then to know that we still all have a place uh, to do some work in this field as we move it forward yeah. in whatever iteration it goes and whatever community we're in. Yeah. Thank well, you. it's been very, very pleasant talking to you both. Uh, thank you for the invitation and best of luck to all the students. Thank, thank you. you.